You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. G'day everybody. Welcome to the Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells. Um, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk horses. We're going to do an equine episode. So, And that is a long way outside of my comfort zone and anything I know. So we're roping in an expert, as we always do. But in this case, it's probably much more important to have an expert because, yeah, I kind of know they've got four legs and that's about it. So my guest today is Lorinda Oliver. Um, g'day Lorinda, how are you? I'm very well this morning, thanks for having me. Good. So you are a Massey graduate, you're a bit over 20 years now, was it 2001 yep. that yep. you came I'd out? Yeah, i say my overalls, my final year overalls are old enough to vote. <laughs> so you graduated, you went to Randwick. I did. Um, I so f- you've done plenty of horsey stuff obviously if you're at Randwick, for those yep. that aren't sort of more on the equine side. That's about as much as I know because my, my father was into horse racing. I know that Randwick is where the races are over in, over in Sydney. Yeah, um, so, fantastic set up um, there. Really, really amazing crew there and they train interns very well. So I was pretty lucky to get a spot there straight out of school. And then you came back to New Zealand. You spent a bit of time in Hamilton Vet Services. Um, so sort of more general practice there or, or quite focused on equine? So at the time when I came back, um, it was still a mixed practice. I didn't have to do any small animal work but um, and I focused on equine work during the week but on after hours and weekends it wasn't unusual to see some sick calves and some calving issues and um, it was a great it was a great job to really get experience across the board so lots of out of hours work there is in the first four years that i had after my internship so kind of the reverse of what we're talking about here you were kind of the more equine person trying to do the large animal stuff after hours and what we're trying to do today is talking about the large animal people doing the equine stuff after hours i suppose yep absolutely and i know it's really stressful and i and I kind of try and think back to what it was like as a new grad. I remember the very first call I ever went to after I'd finished my internship. So you do this internship in this big fancy hospital and everything that comes in is pretty much a racehorse and Mm. there's a lot of money involved and a lot of stress. And and I came to this practice in New Zealand and my first call all by myself that I had to go to was a lame horse. So I wrote this big long differential list and and it was all, had this big plan for what I was going to do when I got there. It turned up, picked up the foot, it was a foot abscess. Yeah, nice. So I I do remember that feeling of you get a call and you're just like, oh, I don't know what to expect. And I do remember that feeling. Yeah, and it's sort of, I guess the point of these types of um, discussions and trying to talk to people about it is it's just being out of your comfort zone, right? You know, it's just sort of stuff that you're not doing every day. Um, And if you're a new grad, I mean, you're just out of your comfort zone constantly. So I suppose that's, you know, that that just is what it is. But, But the idea is, and I guess what we're trying to achieve, maybe we're just jumping slightly here, but what we're really trying to achieve here is to to take some of that sort of fear out of it for for the, not just for recent grads, you know, for, for anybody that just doesn't deal with horses constantly, that, that is probably seeing them in pretty high stress emotional times when, you know, when, when both the horse and the owner might be a bit stressed. So it's just sort of trying to find ways to, to um, give people 
a bit of a template so that they can remove some of that stress out of it, I suppose, if we were to summarise what we're trying to achieve, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. And, you know, half of our job, or probably more than half of our job, is managing the owner and their expectations <laughs> and their emotions well, to a degree. Was, it's yeah, it was, I was going to... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you went there because I was thinking, you know, as an equine practitioner, yeah, the, I mean, you're right, managing the owner is a, is a huge part of it. Um, you've obviously done plenty of that. I mean, I didn't really kind of finish your, your introduction off, I suppose, but, you know, you, you do a heck of a lot of equine stuff and, like, equine sporting type things and um, eventing and um, and you, you spent 15 years in the USA as, you know, doing... Um, uh, doing training and, and large animal surgery, so you're pretty blimmin' well qualified to, to talk about this. Um, and you've obviously dealt with a lot of sort of anxious owners and horses and stuff over time. So, um, I mean, as a, as a starting point, have you got some tips for just, just general stuff, like, you know, how to kind of um, de-escalate some of this stuff and how to properly sort of, um, yeah, make yourself feel a bit more comfortable? I think one of the first things is that you do always have to take the client seriously. You mm. can't belittle what their concern is and you just have to listen and, and help them work through it. Um, there are a lot of emotions involved in a lot of the, the clients that I think a mixed practitioner would see mm. um, as opposed to us in our hospital. We have a lot more, you know, equine is kind of half companion, half production, mm. if it were. And we deal a lot more with the production animal. There's less emotion involved. It's about how much will this cost to fix and does this animal have a, a, a useful athletic career afterwards. Mm. Whereas in the general practice, I think you are dealing much more with a companion type situation. And I guess I want people to realize that you don't necessarily have to turn up and fix the problem mm. right away. And as long as you're listening to the client, you're addressing their concerns and not not minimising them too much. And if it gets to the point where you don't feel like you're going anywhere, then that's definitely the time to phone a friend. And one of the things that I had on my list when I gave a talk to recent grads um, just a little while ago was that make sure you do have a phone a friend. Mm. Um, so that's usually a more experienced vet. Um, if you don't have one within your clinic that you can tap into, then pretty much any referral hospital is happy to take a phone call. We take a lot of phone calls here on the weekend from vets out in practice and they're like, I've got this, what do you think? Should I send it to you or is my treatment plan appropriate? And we would much rather be talking to you on the phone and helping you through it than you being out there and feeling like you're struggling and you don't have, you don't have any support or you're worried that you're not making the right choices. Um, mm. And it, it just, the, the human psychology side of it, I think once you've had kids, you start realizing that you can't fix everybody's emotions, yeah. but you just have to try and keep calm and work through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose um, one thing, I'm just, just thinking, one thing I didn't say was that now you're actually at Waikato Equine Veterinary Centre, so based out of Cambridge, and, and you are a referral centre, I suppose, aren't you? So. Um, yeah. and, a, and a specialist centre, but and there are you know, there's referral places all across the country. I'm assuming you probably take calls from what more than just the Waikato, do you? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yep, we take calls from a long distance away. You know, horses will still travel four, six. One came up from eight hours away mm. a little while ago. 
um, but we're happy to take calls from, there's always somebody on call, so we're happy to talk to other vets who have a case that they're just a little bit worried about or want a second opinion on over the phone. Cool, yeah. Um, and that's actually one of the advances, I suppose, from when I was in practice. Um, well, <laughs> making myself sound like a really old fogo, when I was a new graduate at least, um, you know, just even the ability to just send a photo to somebody now. Um, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. The mm. t- technology that's available now is spectacular. And we do, we get a lot of pictures of wounds and mm. a, lot of, a lot of people just saying, hey, what do you think? Or this is my plan. Is, would you go along with that? And then along with the technology, as far as communicating with people directly, there's a lot of apps available now. A couple of the favourites that I have on my phone, there's um, a big equine hospital in the States called Haggard, spelled H A G. Y-A-R-D, and they have a pharmacy, and they also have some really good sort of treatment protocols on there. Oh, cool. Um, That's one of my favorites. Beaver, if you're a Beaver member, they they have some amazing resources. They have drug drug doses. They have um, how to deal with a bunch of different situations. Um, Liphook has a free app as well. It's L-E-H is the abbreviation for their app. And then you can also get the Merck manual mm. on your phone. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of things like that. When I was when I was a new grad, <laughs> I used to drive around with a box of books in my car, yeah. and I still do to a degree. There's a couple of books that I really love. Um, there's an equine emergencies book. Um, oh gosh, I forget the author at the moment. I'll have to look that up. But that's spectacular, and if you can get that in digital form and have it on your computer and have your computer with you, then mm. these are the things that are going to set you up for success, just having that, that ability to look something up. Mm. Um, and I have, no, I have no worry whatsoever in saying to a client, you know what, this is just a little bit unusual for me and I'm going to look it up and I'm going to get back to you and make sure that we're on the right track. I think clients much prefer that than you yeah. blustering your way through yeah. and pretending you know what you're talking about. They yeah. would much prefer you say, I'm going to come back to you. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, the, the fact is they're going to go look it up themselves. So, you know. Oh, they're going <laughs> to Google everything you say. They absolutely are and they're going to challenge everything you mm. say. So. Mm. It's good to be honest when you're feeling a little bit out of your depth or um, the, it then offering referral. Yeah, that's always yeah. an option as well. Yeah, so what we'll put those um, we'll put some links to those apps in the in the notes I think for the for the show because it sounds really useful. It's the kind of thing that I wish I'd had when I was a, a newer graduate and when I was in practice just that quick reference of some good pictures and that type of type of thing. I think you make a good point that knowing who you're going to talk to in advance is probably really important, isn't it? Rather than just sort of um, in a panic sort of trying to find somebody. I think that's probably something that's that's quite important. Think about who you're going to talk to if you do need to. Um, and then I suppose it's just sort of making sure just making sure you know what's normal and being able to do a good examination. And I suppose one of the problems is that um, as, a, as a non-equine practitioner, you don't see a lot of normal horses perhaps. So perhaps that's one of the things mm. that people can do is, is um, try to get themselves a little bit out of their comfort zone in less stressful situations and maybe see more horses just for vaccinations and those types of things. Is that probably absolutely I think that's a fantastic idea and um, that's one of the things I say to our interns Um, they rotate through our 
main hospital, our referral hospital here in Cambridge, and then they also spend every third month at our branch practice where they do get to do some more primary opinion work. Mm. Here they're pretty heavily supervised, but when they go to our branch practice, they're, they're seeing horses for vaccinations, they're doing teeth by themselves, they're doing a lot more by themselves. And I, and I say to them, take that opportunity to do a TPR on all of these normal yeah. horses because that gives you your baseline. So every chance that you get to, to look and listen to a, a normal horse will add to your sort of comfort level in seeing that abnormal. Absolutely, yeah, same and with any species. Yeah, the more, absolutely. more normal and you see. Yeah. Yep. And your hands and eyes are your most valuable tools. They really, truly are. You mm. can have all the diagnostic tools in the world, but if you haven't looked and if you haven't touched it, then you're more likely to miss things. Mm. So make sure you use those very valuable tools. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on to talking about some of the really scary things? Some of the, I mean, I, I'm thinking myself in practice, always the biggest fear is the colic, right? You know when you when you're on call and you get the colic so and and that's sort of almost the elephant in the room like what you know what do we do um what's the approach to a colic when we when we get a call when we're not familiar with horses i think the most important thing to realize is that your goal is not to fix this colic yeah. everybody thinks i go i see an animal i fix the problem and i leave the goal with a colic is really to establish, is this something which is likely to resolve with a little bit of medical intervention, which is 85% of all colics will resolve with just a wee bit of pain relief, mm. um, or is this something that I need to potentially refer for either intensive medical or surgical management? And, and that's really, in my head, that those are the two things, the two questions that you're trying to answer the first time you see a horse with colic. So um, one, of, one of the best things you can do to start sort of shuffling through your differential list is when you're talking to the client, get a really good history. Mm. So how old is it? Um, how long has it been colicking? What's been going on in its life? Like, is it a mare who's just foaled within the last few weeks mm. and now she's sort of violently painful and throwing herself on the ground? Well, I know what that's gonna be already. Is it an older horse that... I, um, I don't. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be a colon torsion. So it's, right. there, are certain, yeah, there, are, there are certain colics that follow patterns. Yeah. Um, so your post-folding mare, all of a sudden she's got all the space in her abdomen. Mm. They're very poorly designed. I don't know who the management team was that designed a horse. Well, I but they have that. Yeah, they, they really do. <laughs> There, there is some sort of design flaw in there that they get so much, I mean, you know, digestive um, problem, isn't there? I oh, know, they should have been cows, really. Yeah, it's much yeah. more straightforward, much yes, nicer. Hind gut fermentation, obviously, was a bit of a yeah, evolutionary dead end, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, so your history really will um, um, give you some ideas as to what you're most likely dealing with. So post-folding mares violently colicky you can't keep them on their feet they probably have a large colon torsion mm. so they just need to go yeah, they just need yeah. to be sedated and go to a referral hospital any mini that is colicking has a fecalith until it's proven otherwise they love to just compact fecal material in their small colon mm. and blow up like a little tick right. um, 
horses that have had a foot abscess, so a horse that's used to walking around the paddock, as most do in New Zealand, and then the, the kind of classical scenario is if they have a foot abscess or an orthopedic injury and then they're locked up in a box, they're on butch, they're maybe not drinking as well, they love to get um, a large colon impaction. Mm. There's a couple of other horses, like horses that windsuck, like grab mm. their teeth onto a wooden fence or anything they can and then suck in air. They're slightly more at risk of having it uh, an entrapment, a small intestinal entrapment in the epiploic foramen. Okay. So these are parts of your history that you're going to start um, being able to filter out what is wrong with this horse. And the bottom line is anything that doesn't respond to one dose of pain medication needs to go and get further workup. Mm. That's, that's pretty much the bottom. And I, and I say to clients when they come in, if I can't keep your horse pain, uh, if I can't keep your horse comfortable, it probably wants to go on the table. Mm. Mm. But that's when we come in and we do some further diagnostics. We'll tube it, we'll rectal it, we'll put the ultrasound on it, and then we can start getting a, a pretty decent idea of what's going on. So. I guess what you're saying is if you have that conversation with a client and they say for you know, one of those things that you're talking about when you when you start having even even the phone history what would you even by the sound of things a mare that's foaled a few weeks ago and a lot of pain throwing herself on the ground you probably wouldn't even see it you'd just you'd ring straight away i'd still go to it because it's going to uh, need true. some chemical yeah. enhancement yeah. <laughs> to get on the track um, so I would still go and see it, but I'd probably hurry a little bit more than I would otherwise. Um, and, I've, and I've got a list of reasons to refer, um, but we'll maybe circle back. So once you get your really mm. thorough history mm. over the phone and then go out to it, do a really good physical, look and feel everything and mm. listen to everything. And after you've done your physical, it's fine to sedate them. Just Preferably, they just get some xylazine and some butorphanol. Um, um, alpha 2, xylazine or detomidine all by themselves tend to make horses a wee bit angry. So I always like to combine them with something else right. to take the edge off and butorphanol is the most appropriate in this situation. Gives them a wee bit of pain relief as well. And then you just have to kind of assess your situation. So I talk about um, referral and money very early mm. on in the piece yeah. with owners. Um, if I have a horse that's got a higher heart rate than I would like, so if it's over 60, if um, it's a bit of a fancy horse or it's a very well-loved horse, I start talking about it before we get to that real crunch yeah. situation. I say, if we get in a situation when they're not responding to pain medication, would you be willing to yeah. refer um, or potentially do surgery? Nobody ever has that answer right away. They always um and ah. And I'm like, I just want you to yeah. think about it now so that when we come to, if we come to crunch time, you've, you've got an idea of which way you're gonna go. Because if you're not gonna refer it and you've got a horse that you've gone back to two, three, four times, then you have to start talking the other end of the spectrum, which is how much yeah. suffering do we allow before we mm. euthanize this? Um, and, and never put yourself in a dangerous situation. There, there are some, it's interesting, we have a lot of um, UK grads at our practice here, and it seems to be standard of care in the UK when you see a colic that you should rectal it. Um, in New Zealand, I don't think that that is expected no. for every colic. And I think, and I, I say to my interns, don't feel pressured to do it on farm. That's something that they can come in and have done. 
Um, but I don't want people putting themselves in harm's way and doing it because they think it's expected and doing it around the side of a door. I don't think that that is the most sensible thing to do. Mm. Um, I will put a nasogastric tube up way more colics than I will rectal in the field. And then the other thing is, um, if you have an ultrasound, even if it's just a very basic ultrasound, get used to just popping it on the abdomen, up in the inguinal area, just see what you can see. Because it's going to tip the balance. The Usually you can't see anything very exciting. So if you can't see anything very exciting, then, then that's good. But if you see really big loops of small intestine, then that's a really good indication you should send that to the hospital right away. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on the rectaling thing. Um, I think, yeah, we're probably, most of the time you're probably dealing with people that don't handle horses um, as much, I yep. suppose, and probably in pretty marginal facilities. And, and yeah, you, you're Absolutely. probably better to... Um, so, yeah, I guess what you're saying is the, the really important thing with, with um, colic is, is your triage process, right? It's just, can I deal with Absolutely. this? Is it simple? Do I need to make an early call that it goes to somebody else? Um, or, or can I actually deal with it? Well, probably the third thing is, is it, is it actually a euthanasia candidate? So you can kind of use your, yep. your sort of, you've got a few things you can use for that. I, I remember, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but usually you've sort of got things like heart rate that give you a pretty good indication and that sort of thing, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, so, so reasons to refer, if a heart rate's yep. over 60, usually something a little bit more different, more interesting's going on, and either intensive medical treatment's needed or potentially surgery. If you cannot control pain, like if you've given a horse a full dose of non-steroidals, you've sedated it, you've given it a little butorphanol, and you've given it some buscopan, and this horse is just like, thanks for coming, then then that's a really good reason to refer. Um, if the horse is insured, so that's mm. another good discussion point to have with the owner. If the horse is insured, I would be leaning towards mm. referring it um, unless you're very comfortable, it's just a very mild mm. colic. They're willing to do surgery, absolutely send it. And if you've had to go back more than once, then I would be starting to yeah. think about referring it as well. No gut sounds, um, Positive findings on rectal, so either very gas distended or impacted or big loops of small intestine, that would be going to the clinic. If you have gastric mm. reflux, absolutely send mm. it to the clinic and leave your, please leave your tube in. You can leave the tube in and then just um, tape it onto the head collar. I like to cut, cut the finger off an end of a glove, stick it on the end of the tube and then just cut a little slit in it and that gives you a, a homemade Heimlich oh, right. valve okay. so that the gastric reflux can come out but not too much air goes back in. Then anything with those purpley red injected mucous membranes, that definitely mm. needs to go. And to be honest, a really good reason to send one that you're a bit on the fence about is the therapeutic trailer <laughs> ride. Right. <laughs> so some, some horses seem to, if they just have a mild displacement or really gassy, um, sometimes just a couple of hours on a trailer on a bumpy road does them a world of good. <laughs> right. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. It's quite good, actually. Um, That's a, a really good one. Too, probably. It is. It is. And we're happy. Like, we're not going to get grumpy if you send us something that yeah. doesn't need surgery. We're okay yeah. with that. <laughs> so, well, that's the point. I mean, I make the comment about it being cheaper than surgery. Do you have a sort of rough figure, you know, I mean, 
what what it does actually cost. I mean, I guess part of that discussion, if you are going to have it with people when you're referring, is if this does need surgery, this might cost sort of X dollars um, as part of the decision, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And having these money conversations up front, I think people appreciate mm. it. It's a hard conversation to have. And I think it took me, a, that's probably one thing it took me the longest time to get over was talking to people about money. Um, if So your average visit to the farm to see a horse and give it some medication, they usually mm. after hours. So most of the time you're probably gonna spend four yep. or $500 yep. on a visit to a horse after hours. Um, if it needs to come into the clinic and be treated medically, um, I would say most of them, if they need some IV fluids and a little more intervention, most of them would be in about the $3,000 plus mm. range. Um, if a horse needs to go to surgery, and it's a very simple surgery, um, where we don't have to resect any bowel and they get back off the table really nicely, it runs about $5,000. And unfortunately, that's about the same cost to open them up, euthanize them on the table and mm. dispose of the body. Disposal's really quite expensive in New mm. Zealand still. And that's something that's another hard conversation to have with people about disposal, whether they would like us to deal with it and just have it taken away or if they'd like it taken back to their property and buried. And then if we have a more complicated surgery and it's likely to need a lot of medical care afterwards, I say to people, I expect to spend $10,000 plus. So 3,000 for a pretty simple medical, 5,000 plus for a simple surgery, 10,000 plus for a complex surgery with lots of medical mm, aftercare. Okay. So I'm thinking back to my own experience as a, as a practitioner, I suppose, and trying to put myself back in those shoes, just getting a wee while ago now, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and it is basically, um, right, can I deal with this? Can I give it something? Um, and so so I guess if you are going to, if you're just sort of looking at a young horse with lots of gut sounds, you know, probably a spasmodic colic, something like that, just some, some what, some IV buscapan and some, uh, which, which anti-inflammatory? I mean, you talked about non-steroidals, is that flinixin the preference? Yep. or? Yep, so flinixin's my, my preferred. Um, some people are taught don't give flinixin if you think it might be a surgical lesion because you'll mask the, the pain. In my experience, that's not accurate. I think they, they'll happily colic yeah. through a yeah. big dose of flinixin with, with, even with a surgical lesion. So 1.1 um, megs per keg is, is a good go-to dose. And then that's, that's one of the other hard things, estimating mm. horse weight. So a full-grown thoroughbred is usually around about 500 kgs and um, weight tapes can be quite useful to have in your car just to throw around mm. the middle and, and see if you're in the ballpark. So about 10 mils of flinixin for a standard 500 kg horse. And then buscapan's mm. really good as well. If you're, it, it's certainly not going to do any harm, and it wears off quickly enough that it doesn't have any negative effects mm. on our end. Definitely buscapan if you do have a facility and, and the confidence to do a rectal in the field. Um, and then xylazine, you can just keep topping them up with xylazine if you need to, to um, keep them comfortable until they go for referral or if you're if you're trying to work on it on farm. Little doses of xylazine, like one to two mils okay. IV, 
and I like to again like to give it with a wee bit of butorphanol so we don't get the the <laughs> alpha 2 anger it definitely sounds like something um, you want to avoid yep <laughs> yeah sometimes just get really irrationally angry what they call it in the states uh rompin rage because rompin is there uh, yeah we used to call it well yeah it was rompin in new zealand when i was in oh, new which again probably dates man <laughs> where we, the that was the brand name of xylazine yeah. so and you can give ditomidine if you don't have xylazine you can give them a little sniff of ditomidine as well um, mm. we just prefer xylazine if they are having to go on the table later on mm. and then i suppose i mean you've already kind of touched on it a wee bit but if you do end up in that situation so we've decided we're going to treat or we've decided to refer and then the third one is this is you know probably we're going to need to put this down and that's what the decision on that is heart rate of x or oh, i don't think i yeah i don't i don't really have an absolute number for that mm. um but certainly start talking about it if they are not willing to refer and you've been back yeah. to the horse more than more than two times yeah. um, and you are sure that there's not something like an impaction going on that you could potentially manage medically so I don't have an absolute for euthanasia, but it's a com. It's again, it's a it's a conversation to to have, and I've and I've had conversations like that with people, and I remember as a fairly early grad, seeing this lovely little pony that was refluxing. We couldn't keep it on its feet, and I said it either needs to go for surgery or you need to euthanise it. And they said, well, why can't you just give it some paraffin oil by stomach tube? I was like, it's not a magic cure. <laughs> so there, there will be people that push back on you. Um, yeah. and if you can't keep a horse on its feet, it needs to be referred or put to sleep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so just the, the process of actually putting a horse down can actually be stressful in itself, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. For, for an, an experienced, yeah, well, you know, for, for anybody who doesn't do a lot of stuff with horses. So... Any tips for making it as smooth as you can? It's a bit of a ghoulish subject, no, I guess. But it's a reality, sort of though, and you know, there's no grace in death. So the the more graceful mm. we can make it, and that's the last memory a lot of people have of their horse. So the more that we can do to to make it a fairly smooth process, the better. Um, I do love a good catheter for mm. euthanasia. It just you have that you just have that fallback that you're not going to pop out of the vein and stab it yeah. somewhere else by accident, lose yeah. your vein. So I use a, four, we have very inexpensive 14 gauge catheters that are not intended to be long term at all. And I always pop one of those in. And I, With a bleb of local, I'm assuming? Uh, usually I just sedate them really heavily. So, okay. and don't be scared of xylazine. It's not unusual that we'll give six, seven, eight mils of xylazine IV before euthanizing a horse so usually well, i was going to ask about that yeah. so it doesn't it doesn't um drop the blood pressure so much yeah i mean yeah it's still it's pretty hard to miss a jugular even if the blood pressure's dropped i suppose yeah it usually it doesn't become an issue um and okay. if you're having trouble finding a jugular then clip it and get the person holding the horse to really raise their chin and that just makes it mm. a lot easier to see your vein so i'll i'll usually give half to two thirds of my dose of xylazine and then pop the 14 gauge catheter in heading uphill 
I just find it easier mm. with okay. your big syringe of pentabarb to be yeah. facing uphill. And yes. then they have a little stopper on the end of the catheter and I pop that in the end of the catheter so we're not bleeding everywhere. Um, yeah. And once we're in the place that we would like to euthanize the horse, um, I'll often give them, so we've, we've talked about, I love to add butorphanol to everything. You just get a calmer, quieter horse if you add a little butorphanol in. And sometimes I'll add a little ace in. It probably takes longer than the time you've got to make it work, but it makes me feel a little bit better to give them a wee bit of ace, make everything nice and relaxed. And then another pro tip, one of our vets here at the moment actually just taught me recently, she had a broken arm, so she was having trouble. She was still working with her cast on, but she was having a bit of trouble pushing these big heavy syringes. So we, the pentabarb that we have at the moment, typically we use 120 mils of it. And, in, and I usually draw up two 60 mil syringes, but what she was doing was drawing up 40 mils in three syringes, so the same total volume of 120 mils, and then she'd add 20 mils of water to each of the syringes to make it easier yeah. to push, because it's like honey to try and yeah, push that pentabarb. Yeah. So if you dilute it yeah. out with water, that's absolutely fine. And then you can just, you can get it in a little bit easier and not kind of fighting the catheter and fighting the syringe and yeah. potentially losing your vein. So I have, I love to have horses heavily sedated and relaxed and then just talk mm. through with the owner what the process is gonna be. Say, I'm gonna, so he's got some sedation, we're gonna put a wee catheter in his vein and then I'm gonna give him the drugs to put him to sleep and then I will take him from you. So I always take the horse from the owner to drop them. Okay. Um, I think that just typically you can keep the situation a little bit safer and try and make mm. it a little more graceful. And then it's a matter of one hand on the halter, make sure you don't have the rope wrapped around your hand and your other hand on the shoulder and wait until they start to sag before you start pushing. And it's never particularly graceful, no. but the most important thing is to keep everybody safe. Yes. Um, yeah. So just talking it through quickly with the owner before you do it, not too many details because they're not really thinking very well at the time, but just mm. we're going to do this and then I'll take them from you. And as soon as the horse hits the ground, I, I will sit on the head. Not, mm. not with my bottom, but like with my knees and have, mm. a, have a hand over the eye. And if you have a hand over the eye, you can kind of feel under your hand if the eye's moving, if they're blinking, because the corneal mm. reflex is what I usually wait to go before I declare them dead. I don't usually listen to their heart. If they're not breathing mm. and they have no corneal reflex, you can be pretty confident that they're gone. And it, mm. and it just gives a better impression for the owner, I think, if you're down there and you're holding the horse's eye closed than if you're just standing back and watching things. Yeah, I think that all that stuff's actually really, really useful because it's, it's just, yeah, it's trying to have a plan and taking control of the situation, I suppose, as a, as a practitioner. It takes some of the stress out for you and hopefully for the owner as, as well. So, yeah. yeah, it's good. I wish I'd sort of... Yeah, had tips like that. Putting putting a catheter in is probably a good idea. And I've, I've put a few cows down. Um, and I, I remember actually, um, I'm sure that I popped out of the jugular and somehow with a moving cow in the back of it, the farmer had walked it onto um, onto a horse float actually to, to take it for disposal. 
um, and he was holding it with a halter. So it was probably very like actually putting a horse down. Um, and I, you know, just went in with a needle, and I reckon it popped out of the vein and went into a carotid. And I got about ten mils into this cow, and it dropped like a stone and nearly took both of us out in the process. Yeah, um, it was quite, quite frightening actually. It was stone dead with ten mils. Right? Wow. If you if you can do intracarotid injection, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Um, so I remember the blood actually coming back and, and thinking, oh gosh, I've got into the vein easily and it was moving around and you're right about the safety though really you know safety for everybody involved is super important yeah we've got to keep as many um, of us in practice for as long as possible <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah um so is that about it for colic i mean it, it, we do probably spend quite a bit of time on because it's such an important it's thing. a scary um, one i still my heart still drops honestly like i'm like i said i'm 20 well, plus mine, years mine out, drop, of, out of it, practice it escalates pretty pretty quickly yeah but you hear oh somebody's got a colic and you're like oh okay hopefully this is in the 85 percent category and just needs a little a little chemical enhancement and everything's good but it's just being working through the process and knowing a couple of the real red flags that you need to you need to Mm. push the fast button and get it to a referral center on and you can always Mm. if you're on the fence um, with whether it should be referred or not, that's when you find a friend and you just talk it through. Yes. Like, these are my findings, and they're going to ask you all the questions. So make sure your mm. history and your physical has been really thorough. And then, mm. the, and then you can work through the process of whether it needs to be referred. But at least if you've got that voice on the end of the phone, mm. you've got somebody to discuss it with. Yeah, it probably reassures the client if you're actually consulting with somebody yep. else too, to be fair. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, right. So now the other one that's a bit scary after ours is the big wounds, I suppose. The sort of, I used to hate it when there was a thunderstorm and I was on call because you kind of knew there was a chance of a horse running through a fence somewhere. But, um, but yeah, so, so what about those? What are we, what's the approach to those? Have we got any good tips for, for the wounded horse? Yeah, absolutely. So you're, I guess knowing a bit about the client and the horse and what the horse does for a job, most horses have a job, Mm. that's definitely a good starting point. So when you're on the phone with them, how old is it, what does it do, like is it actually an athletic horse or does it need to just stand in the pasture? Um, And then then getting out there to assess the situation. So sedation is going to be your friend for any wounds. Mm. I'm a big fan of sedating horses quick physical to make sure that none of the TPR parameters are too out of out of your comfort zone um, and assessing it to see pain level before you sedate it. If you have a horse with a little wound which is much more paradoxically painful than you would expect it to be pretty much that's an indication that you need to get on the phone and talk about referring that. Little wounds mm. that are super painful are a big deal. Um, mm. So as far as sedation goes, I do like a combination of dutomidine, butorphanol, and a little bit of ACE. No ACE okay. for our breeding stallions, um, and just minimise the amount of ACE you give for any for any entire, so intact um, colts. Otherwise, pretty much everybody can have a combination. What was the reason for that? Is so that it, can cause, it can cause it can cause prior prism 
an extended erection mm. if they but typically mm. just in breeding stallions and then once you have that issue it could be a little bit hard to reverse honestly i haven't <laughs> had i haven't had a case in in my whole career but it is one of the one of the reported side effects um right. clipping right. it clipping and cleaning is really important so please do the best you can with I, I guess I'm more of a cleaner than a clipper. Like if I can get a really clean wound, then I might mm. skip the clip. But if you can clip without contaminating more hair into the wound, then clipping the yeah. edges will help you with just assessing viability of tissue and assessing and, and seeing where you're gonna put your suture bites. This mm. is where this is where vet school becomes important in those things that you learned way back in anatomy so knowing where your synovial structures are um, mm -hmm. knowing where the particularly the back of different synovial structures are um, the back of a fetlock joint the back of a knee um, mm -hmm. the back of a hock there are, there are some sneaky synovial structures so this is where it comes in the little wound that's really painful then you have to right. think about what synovial structures are potentially involved here um, I think everybody gets taught at vet school the solution to pollution is dilution. So flush, 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 flush. Yeah. I like to, I'm not opposed to using a hose to get gross contamination off. And oh, then okay. um, a, little bit of, a little bit of chlorhexidine scrub to get some of the chunky bits. And then your last flush before you start trying to close any wound should be saline because you want to get the homeostasis of the wound back to fairly normal. Um, just bang a 14 gauge needle in the end of a 500ml bag of saline and use that to, to clean off your wound and some swabs in there. Get as much dirt and hair and junk out of the wound as possible and have a gentle feel with a gloved finger to see if it travels deeper anywhere. So if you can see bone or tendon or if there's a lot of sticky fluid coming out of a wound those are probably cases that, that you want to talk to the client about referring. Mm. The beauty of wounds is that a lot of things will heal um, mm. in spite of us mm. rather than because of us. Yeah, horses are actually, you know, we think of them as being quite sort of fragile things, but they do heal. They do heal reasonably, reasonably well. well. If, it's, yeah. if it's a horse that needs to be an athlete, then yeah. those are the ones that I would think about. Get everything cleaned up and and talk to your referral hospital and get it wrapped up and send mm. it off. Um, there's, horses love to hurt themselves outside of ours as well <laughs> and we have really good light <laughs> and, <laughs> and everything at our fingertips here. So it's much easier to do a good job of suturing a wound here with extra yeah. helpers and all the equipment that we need than it is True. you know, in the middle of yeah. a paddock with a headlamp on. It just occurred to me, I was just thinking about the sedation. Um, we haven't talked about using a twitch is that still something that people use much? I know some of these things. Like, oh, I mean, tail yes. jacking and, and cattle is a bit out, you know, is obviously out of favour. Um, scruffing cats, you know, that's, that's yeah. sort of um, being discouraged more these days. Is twitching yeah. a horse still, still okay? So, allegedly, twitching a horse releases natural endorphins. Mm. So, I think that <laughs> I'll stick with that story. Um, no, twitching a horse, absolutely. I think it's really valuable. Cool. Some of them some of them will sedate well but creep right. and they just keep shuffling forward and moving and moving and moving and a twitch usually will slow that down. And then I like regional regional blocks 
for stitching up wounds. Yeah, so instead of filling all your... Too. So, I mean, because you, you've got them under heavy sedation, you could what, you could almost stitch if they're heavily enough sedated, but... No. Yeah. I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could. They're always, they're always going to move if, right. they're not, if they're not blocked, if they haven't got any local anaesthetic in them, yeah. then they're still going to move even if they're heavily sedated. Mm. Um, so traditionally, I think we're all taught inject local around your wound edges, mm. Um, what we find, and particularly these big cannon bone, hind limb cannon bone wounds, seems to be a New Zealand specialty. Mm. Um, if you pop a tourniquet on above the hock or above the knee, and then you'll see this big honking vein pop out at you, mm. either the saphenous vein in the hind limb or the cephalic vein in the forelimb. You can easily pop a butterfly catheter in there and put 30 mils of local in there to do a regional block mm. and they stand beautifully and it works in cows i had to see a cow well a i was just going to say yeah. a lot of yeah a lot of bovine practitioners will actually do that for, yeah. for things like taking a claw off so, so it's actually it's a technique they're reasonably familiar with so yeah. it's a good tip and it, and it gives you a lovely block you've mm. probably got about 20 to 30 minutes of tolerance mm. of a horse with a tourniquet on mm. So you do have to hustle to get it done, but it's quite an elegant way to suture up a wound without filling so much of the, the tissues. And usually you're dealing with really high tension mm. closure on these distal limb wounds in horses. Mm. So if you have anything above the stifle or the elbow, that's beautiful because they're going to heal fantastically. If you can suture them together, most of them are going to heal pretty well. And if they break down, just a little bit of hose therapy will get them to granulate and contract and, and you'll be golden. These distal limb wounds where there's a lot of tension, a lot of movement, mm. no muscle underneath the skin, they are a bit trickier, but they can be done. Mm. And I'm slowly but surely teaching all of our interns and students who come through about the value of towel clamps. I love towel clamps. Yeah, I see and it's, pictures. it's a bit sad, yeah, in our podcast we don't have pictures, yeah. but I've got some spectacular ones. But just a row of towel clamps all the way down a, a cannon bone laceration, or there's one, I've got a picture of a foal, and his head is just peppered with towel clamps yeah. because he tore a couple of decent holes on his forehead and then down the middle of his blaze so if you clean your wound really well and make sure that it, it's looking good to and ready to suture and then use your towel clamps to pull those skin edges together and fatigue those skin flaps mm. and they'll sit there just for well for the duration of time that you're suturing really so you have your row of towel clamps and then start suturing in between your towel clamps. And as you do that, then slowly you can just take off or reposition mm -hmm. a towel clamp. So it does two things, aligns everything beautifully and also allows you to um, fatigue that skin and you're more likely to get it together. And, and just do a bit of reading and make sure you know different suture patterns. There's, there's one of our favorites here in the clinic is called a far near near far mm -hmm. pattern and it's a type of a vertical mattress mm -hmm. so it spreads mm -hmm. your spreads your load across the across the wound and um, relieves tension and is less likely to interfere with the blood supply of that wound edge in mm -hmm. suture 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 mm -hmm. get practice your suturing and it's always worth a try, even if you only preserve that skin flap, 50% of that skin flap, mm. then that's a whole lot less wound that has to granulate it. And we mm. know horses 
and granulating wounds and proud flesh are a pain to manage. So the more skin you can preserve, the better in the long run. You're going to get a quicker healing. And then um, setting expectations. Uh, we all we all think that if you suture something, it should be two weeks until it's healed and back together. Well, it takes months mm. for wounds to regain in full strength. And honestly, they're only going to be about 80% of full strength, even when they're completely healed. Mm. So I tell people with these big hind limb wounds, it's going to be nine to 12 months before you don't look at it. Cracky. <laughs> yeah. They take, they take a long time and a lot of bandage material. Mm. And some people can't, they can't actually afford to treat a big hind limb well, wound. I was going to go there. Because it's expensive. Yeah. 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 And, it's, and it's okay. It's devastating. It's gutting to put down an otherwise healthy horse mm. with, with a wound. And you're like, I can get this to heal. Yeah. We just need time and bandage and money. Mm. But for some people, that's a really that's really hard for them to think of spending five thousand dollars over the course of mm. nine months on mm. bandage material, and that's the reality of what it's going to cost. Mm. Um, mm. There's a couple of tricky areas in horses. Anytime you have a heel bulb laceration, yeah, they love with that movement, that constant movement, and they're very close to the ground. They don't like to heal well, and also hocks, because hocks are always bending. Mm. So in those particular cases, we do tend to use casting material, and casting material over a bandage. I don't particularly like um, putting on, you know, a human-style cast where there's very little padding, and then the casting material over it. So Mm. we tend to use a double-layer bandage, and then put the casting material over that, and I think at one stage we're going to have a link on our WVC website. I'll have to see if we've made that live. But there are resources available. YouTube is an incredible resource. Mm. Um, you have to you have to sort through a little bit of fluff sometimes. But if you want to learn to do something, then I actually look at YouTube for some things. Mm. And the other really amazing resource is AAEP, which is the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And they have tons and tons of how-to articles. Mm. And if you type in, and a lot of the time, and I tell the interns as well, like type in AEP, how-to footcast, or mm. how-to ocular exam. And they're amazing. They're these short PDF files that you can that you can download and save, and they walk you through how to do a lot of things. Mm. So that's a brilliant resource. Mm. Um, Anything on a head or a body, you're going to look like a hero. So <laughs> it's good to it's good to suit your stuff on a head or a body. And heads are very amenable to stapling. <laughs> Keep a stapler in your car, and you can and you just click those together, and they they look amazing. Yeah, I do, well, actually, I don't know whether people actually have staplers, and you know, as, if you're a bovine practitioner, it'd probably be a great idea for doing a cesarean, actually. If you had one of those. Uh, skin's a bit thick in a cow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah pretty good staple. I, I wish. <laughs> although you might be able to get different disposable staples that would be thick enough. Yeah. That was where I cut my teeth in surgery. So right. Purdue University in the States is where I did my surgery residency. And you turn up as this like fresh face first year surgery resident and they're like, There's a cow coming in. Hmm. Go do a C section. <laughs> 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 And it's brilliant. They have rolling stocks and they'd like load it off the trailer into these rolling stocks and roll it into a room. It's fantastic. And pygmy goats. <laughs> Cows and pygmy goat C-sections is where I learned how to suture. Um, yeah, but I mean, stitching up wounds, 
they are actually quite rewarding, I guess, you know, because you, you turn up as just a terrible looking disaster and by the end of it, like it, it always looks a bit better. So um, yep. whether it ends up better a little bit further down the track, I suppose, is another question. Yeah, but. and you know, that's where setting expectations mm. comes in as well. Like I usually say to people, this is going to look amazing for a week, mm. then it's going to start breaking down because mm. horses will always, like you pat yourself on the back, I did mm. an amazing job, look mm. at this good stitch up I did. And then, you know, seven days later it starts falling apart. That's okay because you've still, you've preserved the skin, mm. you've made a biological bandage mm. and hopefully there's less, there's less of that wound to have to granulate in and heal by second intention. Mm. But, you know, my husband, what did he teach me? He said, um, under-promise and over-deliver. Yeah. And then people will always be happy. It's yeah. much better than going the other way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, this will heal great. This will be fantastic. And then you get egg on your face. <laughs> I like that term, biological bandage. I have to try and use yep. that again. It's, it's good. Yeah, so I suppose in... They do break down, they get infected, so I suppose antibiotics, that's probably the other discussion. Yep. Um, we're all yep, a bit scared of antibiotics and horses and all the things that can go wrong. Yeah, um, and we're, we're trying really hard in New Zealand. I think the UK is doing an amazing job at um, managing antimicrobial use and make sh- mm. making sure we're not overdoing antimicrobials. Um, it can be tricky with some of these owners that just have one or two horses if they're not comfortable injecting a yeah. horse. Penicillin is usually my first go-to. Um, so, And you want to use a decent dose. So for a, a big horse, a 500 kg horse, 30 mils in the muscle twice a day, yeah. ideally. Mm. Um, the label on the bottle is usually significantly less than that. Yes. Oh, but they're changing. The, the labels changing. actually will now say um, twice a day in horses um, and, oh, and high dose rates. So, so that's, that's coming. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and just checking your dose rates with an app or with a, yeah. a referral centre is good. We do add gentamicin in, in a good number of cases. Um, we are trying to get a little bit narrower spectrum with antibiotic use and um, really justifying the cases that we're using it on. Um, In shorter courses, it seems to be, the goal now is the shortest course that that gets the job done. The body should be able to fight infection. It's just when Mm. we're in this imbalance of inflammation Mm. and, um, you know, we've got a lot of tissue trauma, when the body can't effectively treat infection, we're just trying to swing the balance. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's it's same principles yeah. across all the species, really. Of um, yeah. Shorter is better. So I'm okay with with a with a three to four day course of injectable antibiotics. If things are going well, then we can just stop cold turkey. Sometimes we will switch to an oral, switch to um, trimethoprim, potentiated sulfonamide, sulfur T, trimethoprim sulfur. Lots of different names mm. in lots of different countries. Mm. Um, and but yep. the two things that are gonna that will make you less successful in wound repair are movement and infection. So as far as infection goes, you can control for a lot of mm. that by your cleaning, your initial cleaning, and um, then if you're controlling for movement, then often you get less infection because you have less sort of tissue planes moving past each other and less accumulation of fluid. And 
in if mm. I do block mm. do a regional block on some horses, then I will do a regional um, antibiotic infusion as well. So you can kind of kill two birds with one stone in that initial period and reduce your overall bacterial load. Which what antibiotic do you use for that? You can use gentamicin, so about so your total volume for a okay. IVRP is usually sixty mils. That's what we're aiming for. If you're going in a cephalic or a saphenous vein, so I do half of that as local. I do my yep. local first. Um, they just stand a little bit better if they're blocked, and then the other thirty mil syringe. Yep. I um, so if I'm using gentamicin, I go ten mils of gent, twenty mils of saline, or we do like to use um, mm. one of the one of the cephalosporins, ceftrax, and is something we'll quite often use because if you do get outside the vein, then there's much less tissue reaction if you have some extravasation. Mm. Um, we're working really mm. hard in New Zealand at the moment to use less of the cephalosporins, and it's. Is that a yeah, third or fourth generation? Which one it is, the Just comes in a nice handy right. one gram vial, so it's um, it's quite convenient to use. <laughs> but that's that's a push as well. I think using regional antibiotics can be uh, a way forward and less likely to use these bigger doses of mm. of systemic antibiotics. Mm. Mm. It's a good yeah. It's probably something that's maybe coming yeah. a bit more in the future oh and too. please don't it's cut off skin yeah. <laughs> unless you're absolutely sure it's dead <laughs> like i prefer even if you have a big flap of yep. skin and it's not attached to anything and it's not staying down we can always work on that later but preserve as much skin as you can until you're absolutely sure that it's dead yeah and then i suppose uh kind of touched on bandaging um yeah it's just about a I mean, podcast in itself bandaging horses legs i suppose isn't it Oh, yeah, it is. It is. But I think there's some good principles that you can cover. Um, thinking about your primary layer that's on the wound and what you're wanting it to do is the first step. If you have a very dry wound, like a, you know, a, a post-op wound, I guess, that's just a dry wound with sutures in it, then you can put almost anything you like mm. on it. If you have a wound with a lot of exudate or an infected wound, then that's when you should be looking at one of the fancier dressings. We have a couple of favourites in the hospital. Um, Kendall AMD, antimicrobial dressing. Those are an amazing, that's sort of my go-to for most Mm -hmm. wounds, I guess. Um, And it will absorb some of that exudate. And if your next layer is synthetic, uh, we use a lot of soft band over okay. that. Then it wicks any discharge away from the wound surface. And the next layer that we would put on is cotton wool, and that absorbs the absorbs any exudate. So, just thinking about what you're putting immediately on the wound, wick it away with a synthetic layer, and then into an absorbent layer like cotton. Mm. If you just put cotton or gamgee on as your first layer, it tends to hold all that exudate next yeah. to the wound and on the skin, right. and it macerates it a wee bit. Um, and then the gamgee or cotton is a wee bit personal preference. I prefer cotton because I find it easier to conform and pop a crepe bandage over yeah. it, followed by a vet wrap, elastoplast. That's kind of the, I guess that we could say that's the WEVC yeah. bandage. That's the typical layers that we use in... Um, and just asking for a few tips about bandaging tricky areas like hocks mm. and um, using splints and casting material on horses can be really useful but probably 
you're not typically going to have yes, stuff in your truck mm. to, to pop those on. Um, and then always just, just be aware of your synovial structures anytime you have a wound. I'll say it again because I love to say it, but if it's over a joint, make sure it's not mm. in the joint. Mm. <laughs> and if it's, if it's really painful with a little wound, then you're going to be looking for either infection or a fracture. Yeah. Mm. So I suppose that's, that's most of wounds. Um, is there anything else on that? And we probably... We've been going, um, yeah, there's so many things to cover, but those those are the big two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and pictures and just reading up, like just take snippets. Every time you see something that's a little out of your comfort zone, mm. do a little bit of reading. And, and there's so many resources mm, on mm. online now. And if you read up about that case at that time, then that will help cement that memory. Mm. And then you'll keep that memory in your head for the next one. If you just wing it and you and you don't read up or you don't touch base with somebody, then you're not going to grow. I think mm. as much as if you just take just take a little bit of time to learn a little bit more about each case. Yeah, so get it wrong and then get it right the next time. Sometimes it's <laughs> actually yeah, absolutely. And it's a it's a learning curve. Mm. Like this job is a learning mm. curve for your entire life. I think yes. all of us will learn something our entire lives every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we oh, talking about suture material. Yep. I guess we the different brands all around the world. We currently have um, a polypropylene suture, Silver Glide is the brand mm. name, and that that's probably my go-to for most wounds. It's bright pink. <laughs> it's great. A lot of horses have black legs, so suturing them with a black nylon makes it really hard to find your suture when you come back. Very good point. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, number zero, which I can't remember what it is in the in the European sizing, but Oort suture yeah. um, on a swaged on needle, size zero, polypropylene, something like that. That's appropriate for most horse skin yeah. wounds. Um, just read up about your tension relieving patterns, mattress mm. sutures, near, far, far, near. Mm. Usually I do simple interrupted. Mm. Um, I used to close all my cow C-sections with a Ford interlocking super mud. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but horses, you get much better results yeah. if you're doing interrupted pattern. And um, the only time I really use staples is on the head. Mm. Mm. Okay. So anything, I guess, in brief, there's probably a few other things you might get. The sort of, I guess, things like acute lamenesses, foldings, those types of things. Is there any sort of quick tips on, on any of any of those things? Eyes, sick folds, I suppose. So sedate your eyes really well. Read up about a couple of blocks. Again, the AEP how-to, how to block an eye. There's two quick and easy blocks that you can do without any specialized equipment just to stop them from holding that lid really closed. Um, stain every eye that you go and see lacerations around the eye are a wee bit tricky and they're probably one that you want to refer but mm. sedate every eye examine it really well stain it send some pictures take some pictures and send them to somebody if you want some um, mm. extra advice on them um, mm. always roll out the foot 
blindnesses <laughs> every you get so many mm. clients oh it's in the mm. hip or it's in the shoulder always block the foot so if the only nerve block that you know how to do is an abaxial sesamoid that's absolutely fine and you're going to roll in or roll out the foot yeah right um, so put a yeah. block in and then see if they sound yeah. after that. You know, I've never thought of that. That shows how smart I am. Even for some <laughs> of these really painful hoof abscesses, you can sedate them and, and sometimes mm. you can't, still can't even get the other foot off the ground. That's so painful. So just popping a block in makes it much easier when you're peering mm. out the mm. foot and looking for an mm. abscess. So always, always, mm. always roll out the foot because you look a bit silly when you... Is it, is it similar to, I mean, we always say in cattle, it's about 95% of lameness will be actually in the foot. Um, it, is it similar? It's definitely the majority. The majority of lameness is yeah. going to be in the foot. Yeah. Mm. Um, foals, any quick tips on dealing with sick foals? Foals are tricky. They crash and burn so fast. Those are one that I would def. If you don't see a lot of foals, that's something right. I would get on the phone right away and mm. talk to somebody about. And there's a lot you can learn a lot about handling foals as well. So if you have a very young foal that's sick but feisty enough to try and mm. kick you and carry on, there's some there's some nice ways to sedate them. So a mill of diazepam IV in about 0.2 butorphanol IV is a really good way just to slow a foal down without compromising them. We don't want to use alpha 2s mm -hmm. in these really little babies, but you do need <laughs> to slow them down enough to put a catheter mm -hmm. in sometimes and to examine them really thoroughly. Um, but definitely mm -hmm. call us on those. We're happy to talk you through and happy to see those. Foals get expensive really quickly, so the quicker they get in the hospital, typically the less ex expensive they'll be in the long run because we can get them turned around mm. and home quicker. And we'll be the ones up all through the night looking after it for you. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very good reason to refer it to, yeah. Um, yeah. Foalings are a bona fide yeah. emergency. If there is a mere foaling and, and having trouble foaling, um, you, if you're an experienced mixed animal practitioner that does, does a lot of calving, I'd say mm. go and have a go, but you don't sit on them for mm. very long at all. Once a mare is in active stages of labour, that foal should be out in a very short period mm. of time. And if it's not, and it, so if beyond an hour, two hours at the absolute maximum, if you don't have that mm. foal out, then chances are you're not getting a live foal. So it's worth talking to the owner, what are the relative value of the mare versus the foal to are we willing to go for a c-section and we have most of our clients around here trained now we know that if they can't get the foal out on farm then probably mm. we can't either so they just load them up bring them into the clinic um, we pop a catheter and we anesthetize them and we hoist them by their hind legs so if there's any question whatsoever that these people are willing to refer mm. i just Mm. Yep, get them on yeah, the You don't exactly do a standing caesarean like, like in a cow. So, <laughs> Unfortunately not. I don't know a horse that would tolerate no, that. No. Yeah, um, yeah my, my one experience of foaling was um, uh, when I was working in Northern Ireland and I got called out in a blizzard at about 3 o'clock in the morning and drove all the way there. And when I arrived, there was a foal standing next to the, standing next to the horse, which was just the most relieved I'd probably ever been. 
Um, Absolutely. And, and the guy felt so bad. I mean, it was fantastic. Like, the guy felt so bad he gave me a bottle of whiskey the next day. I was like, look, mate, I'm not. <laughs> I'm so happy to see that fold. But, yeah, so, no, yeah. I, I can't offer much on the on the folding side, unfortunately. But, yeah. And mares, like, cows sort of sit there and say, excuse me, I'm mm. having a baby. And the horses are like, you know, call the fire brigade. They're so explosive <laughs> when they're foaling. They're very different mm. in that. Um, oh, I've got one. I've got one other tip about sure. lameness that I was just looking through my notes here. And one thing I forgot to say was um, there's a couple of good tips. And young horses always X-ray both mm. legs because foal bones look funky. Ah, so right. always use the other leg as, as okay. the control. Um, if it's a foal and it's less than two weeks old and it's lame, it needs to be yeah. referred. That's going to be a septic okay, so, joint. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, if you dig out a big abscess, please call the farrier and tell them, confess, if you confess right away and say, hey, I've seen this horse, had a really big abscess, had to take quite a bit of hoof, he's going to forgive you more than if he just gets called by the owner and he'll turn up, he's like, vets, they always, always take too much (laughs) foot. So just like get a good relationship with the farrier and and call them or text them, texting is probably easier, text them and say, hey, I've seen this horse, I've dug out its foot. Um, if you have a really lame horse with a little wound or a swollen joint, yes. send it in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's just about it. Is there anything else? Just any sort of final tips? Any other things that you you um, words words of, of wisdom? wisdom. <laughs> everybody says I talk a lot, so I've always got advice <laughs> for everybody. Um, uh, come and do it. Come and do an internship with us for a year. If you're a mixed animal practitioner and you want to do a bit more horses, come and do an mm. internship. I think it would be, uh, I think it would probably make everybody a little bit more relaxed about about seeing horses mm. in practice. Um, there's so many online webinars. You can get lots of information online now, and do culture and sensitivity on everything. We're trying to get better with antibiotics, so let's do culture mm. and sensitivity. That's one of my soapboxes. Um, Keep mm. safe and have fun. I mean, the job is supposed to still be fun. It's stressful. It's hard work. But keep yourself safe. Advocate for mm. yourself. Don't put yourself in a position where you might get hurt. Photograph everything. My camera roll is awful. My kids get hold of my phone. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't look at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's full of all sorts of gory pictures. But you'll appreciate having them yeah. in the future, especially if you end up giving talks to people. It's great to have photos of everything. And it also gives you something to compare back to. I even give uh, clients the job. I say, okay, take a photograph of this every week and, and then we can track how it's going and you can send it to me and it might save you a busy mm-hmm. here and there. Um, find a really good mentor. Um, I don't know the easiest way to do that, but hopefully through through your career you can find somebody that you can touch mm. base with. Um, and if you don't have one close by, then find the nearest referral hospital that, that you can just call up. And there will always be somebody on call, so you might not always get the same person, but there will always be somebody mm. experienced on call. Um, lots of spare stuff in your truck. Carry spare clothes. Know where to get food. I'm all about <laughs> so the food. Yep. Everybody cracks yep. up. Yeah, yeah. Got to find the, the best food caravans or cafes that yeah. you can stop at. Know where the toilets That's, are. Those are the two best pieces of advice <laughs> we've probably ever had on a podcast, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's nothing worse than driving around the countryside thinking, oh God, or no, the clients with the best toilets as well. There is, yeah, there's always yeah. some clients, so above and beyond. And please teach the next generation. Yeah. You know, we're, there's no point in us reinventing the wheel every time we come out. So mm. um, just invest a little bit of time in teaching other people your pearls of wisdom. Everybody has something that they feel good about, they feel they've, they've mm. got a handle on. So teach that to other people. And be okay to fail and forgive yourself for failing. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have cases that don't go how mm. we expect them mm. to. And it, just get used to sharing those and mm. learning from those and forgiving yourself. Mm. Um, and the bottom line is communication is the key to success. Communicating with clients, communicating with colleagues, communicating with your spouse. <laughs> Every you've got to communicate. You've got to talk about the hard things. You've got to take a deep breath and just all right. I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> Was that were you still talking about talking with your spouse then? Or were you... <laughs> no. <laughs> talk to your yeah, kids. Yeah. Talk to your kids too. Well, That's to all they want they from us, really. To you when they become a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talk to them even if they're not talking <laughs> yes. to you, but. Yeah. That's you know that's the bottom line, right? We're we're all here to um, make the world a little mm, bit better, mm. and and all that most people want from you is is a bit of time and and feeling like they've been heard. Mm. Kids, spouses, and colleagues alike. <laughs> and clients, yeah. <laughs> and clients. Oh yes. And yeah. Now that's awesome. I wish I'd had that type of thing actually you know all that sort of advice as a practitioner myself it would have probably made my life a little bit less stressful um so thank you so much lorinda we'll put a few of those resources um we'll put some links to some of those things um in the notes um for the show so you know hopefully people can look at a few pictures and get some of those pdfs and things as well um, once they've had a listen um, but hopefully that's useful. I've certainly enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, once again, thanks very much, Lorinda. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Verbac with the support of the NZVA. If you've made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email feedback at verbac.co.nz or call 0800 Verbac.